Well, good morning, church. As you're taking out your seats, you can open your Bibles to that passage our friend Nathan just read. Looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. If you don't own a Bible this morning, there's some that are provided for you on the, uh, the coffee bar out here. We would love to gift you with one. If you do not own a Bible, uh, feel free to take it. It's yours as our gift to you. Uh, we're coming to the end of our study through the book of Ephesians. Uh, as we've been journeying through in, in sections through the book together looking at the end of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Up to this point, Paul has laid the foundation of what it means to be in Christ. That's kind of the theme uh, of what we are talking about as we have worked through the book of Ephesians. What does it mean uh, to, to be a Christian? What does it mean to be in Christ? And kind of through the first three chapters, through chapters one through three, Paul lays the foundation of what it means uh, to be in Christ. In Christ, we've been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we've been adopted, we've been given every spiritual blessing. He talks about what it means to be a church, what it means to be unified as a body under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then through chapters four through six, Paul kind of gets practical with it. He breaks out on, because of this reality of being in Christ, this is how it should play out in the way that you live. And we're coming this morning at a section that is kind of the coming to the close. It is Paul's uh, kind of last charge to the church in Ephesus. If you're familiar with how this would have gone down in the, in the early church, this, this letter would have actually been read aloud to the church gathered together, and this would have been the last charge as they were hearing, as they would be going out into their day. What, what is it that, is that Paul is going to leave them with? And he leaves them with this charge, be strong in the Lord. I think he's trying to bolster their faith. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to send them out. It's kind of a battle cry, a charge, go out, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of of his might. So this morning we're looking at what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? What does that mean? We're going to walk through the text in a verse by verse format. We're going to look at some principles that I think that are timeless from the passage, and then we're going to try to apply those principles uh, to our day to day life. That's where we're going with the sermon. So I hope my goal of the sermon is that you would be encouraged, that you would be equipped to do every good work, that your affections for Jesus would grow as you see his love for you, and that you would be uh, equipped to maybe battle or fight uh, with more clarity or understanding uh, our, our power as we go into your week moving forward. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, open to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start right off in verse 10. I couldn't think of a catchy uh, introduction, so we're just going to get right into the text. Sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, there's a book that I've been reading that, uh, that my friend Will had, had recommended from the beginning of the passage or the beginning of our study through the book of Ephesians, a book called Ephesians for You by a guy named uh, Richard Koken, and he says, he says it like this. He says, he begins, finally, because far from being a random diversion or disconnected afterthought, this passage is actually the glorious climax to Ephesians, and it's all about spiritual warfare. Paul continues, God's battle plan for our spiritual resistance to the devil's scheming. He locates our unlimited supplies in God. He analyzes the threat of the enemy forces to divide and conquer us. He clarifies our response in standing firm. He trains us in wearing the protective armor we will need. And then he explains his strategy for victory, namely praying for world mission. I thought that was a phenomenal way of describing what this passage is and where we're going with it. So Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. This word strong means to be enabled. To, to have a capacity to do something that you weren't able to do. 
uh, in the strength of his might. The strength here means controlling power of God's strength. So I pray that you would be enabled by the controlling power of God in his might, his strength. The possessions of qualities required to do something or get something done. So be strong in the Lord. And out of this, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, this was a passage that we looked at a while back, but it's similar to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24, putting on. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you were heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. This is, I think, the, the, what the tying in that he's getting out of. When someone comes into faith in Jesus Christ, when they believe in the gospel, the old self has been put on and they've put on this new self that is Jesus Christ. And with that new self, not only comes his righteousness, but his armor. So I like to, th- I think in pictures, I think in illustrations, a good way to think about it is the old dirty garments that you used to wear. The old self actually is kind of killed. And there's this new self that has been put on, a self that looks like Christ, his righteousness. So you, the old clothes are gone in your naked self, the new clothes of Christ have been put on. And not only these new clothes, but now a new armor has been put on you. And Paul lists out what this armor means. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the schemes of the devil. Now the word whole armor there could mean weapons and armor. The word means any weapon or piece of armor that makes up a part of the whole equipment of a soldier. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against. The word there means withstand, with courage. So put on this armor of God that you may be able to stand with courage against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes means a way of doing something that is deceptive, especially in a systematic way. It implies orderly, logical arrangement. Just put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I take all that to mean that a principle we can take from this passage is that the devil is real, he has real authority, he has real power. I think we can, that's pretty clear from the scriptures. We can see that. Now, sometimes in Christian circles, in the Christian's faith, there can kind of be two errors when it comes of thinking about, talking about, understanding the devil, Satan. And I know I'm generalizing, but it seems like there's kind of two groups that people can fall in. One is, there's a group maybe over here, maybe over here with you guys, that underemphasizes spiritual warfare, demonic forces. There's a side in which uh, they're ignorant of it. There's a side in which uh, if you downplay Satan and spiritual warfare, if if I were to say to you, uh, tell me about spiritual warfare in your life, you would have no clue what I was talking about. You might think, I don't think I've ever had spiritual warfare in my life. I think that's one error. The other error is to overemphasize it. To say everything that bad that's happened, Satan has his hand in every little thing, right? It's, it's the kind of person who wakes, who sleeps in from their alarm and says, oh, Satan really had me this morning, uh, I slept in and now I'm going to be late to work. Satan really is trying to take me out of my job, right? And then, of course, the people on this side of the room would say, listen, dummy, you just need to set your alarm earlier, right? Oh, louder, yes. 
So I think what, what needs to happen is this, the, the one side is maybe uh, it downplays, the other side that overemphasizes. we can come together to see what does the scriptures really teach about Satan? What does the scriptures teach about the devil? And I hope briefly to talk about this so that both sides can come together and we can have a correct understanding of, of spiritual warfare, of the enemy. And before I get into looking at some verses about Satan, spiritual warfare, the devil, I just want to say on the beginning that there is no debate or question or uh, it's not up in the air if Satan has been defeated. Right? You could put all your chips in on Jesus and win every time. Satan is not more powerful than Jesus. Satan does not have control over God or his people. Jesus Christ has been defeated and victorious. Colossians 2.15 says, He, referring to Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The picture in the scriptures is not, uh, oh, who's going to win, Jesus or Satan, right? Did some, some pregame analysis. Every one of the announcers, everyone on the desk is going to pick Jesus. He's going to win by a landslide. He's going to slaughter the enemy. But on the same line, although Satan has been defeated, he is not harmless. Satan will be ultimately defeated, but until then, he is not harmless. He still has power. A question I'd like to lay before you this morning is, how well do you know the devil and his schemes? I was reading an article back in 2007 in the Washington Post by a guy named Bruce Hoffman. He says, we can't win if we don't know our enemy. And he was referring to uh, the war that President Bush uh, said, you know, there's a war on terror. He kind of announced that. We're declaring war on, on terrorism. And he said this, what I thought was really interesting in the article. He said, military tactics are doomed to failure when they are applied without a sophisticated knowledge of the enemy being pursued of, of how the enemy thinks and therefore how he is likely to respond or adapt to tactics being used against him. Without knowing our enemies, we cannot successfully penetrate their cells. We cannot sow discord and dissension in their ranks to weaken them from within. We cannot think like them to anticipate how they might act in a variety of situations. This means that we cannot conduct an effective counter-terrorist strategy by preventing or deterring attacks, or an effective counter counterinsurgency strategy by winning the support of the population and dismantling the insurgent infrastructure. I think a principle that we can take from this reality, we cannot win if we don't know our enemy, is that if we're ignorant of Satan and the schemes that he's trying to play against us, I think we are already being defeated. I think we're already set back, you could say. So I think it's helpful and important and necessary to know who our enemy is and what he tries to do. So I just have some... Uh, Real quick things about what Satan tries to do, I think, in the life of the, in the world, in the life of the believer. Satan's tactics are to discourage, to deceive, to sow doubt, to sow division, to devour. From the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, we see Satan comes to cause doubt. Genesis chapter 3. If you're curious and want to do more study on this, Genesis chapter 3, uh, the serpent, it was the devil, comes in and tempts Adam and Eve, and he tempts them to doubt God's word. That is a huge thing that the, the devil will try to do in the life of a believer. It will tempt you to get you to believe that God's word is not true, it's not authoritative, and God's will is not good. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he said, did God really say, did God really say don't eat of the, the fruit? Surely God didn't 
mean that. God, God doesn't want you to be God. He doesn't want you to experience, to eat the fruit because you might be like him. He doesn't want that, right? Satan will try to use these, these lies, these beliefs to get you to believe that some, some part of the will of God, some part of his command is actually robbing you of something that you deserve or that you should enjoy. The Bible is clear. God's will is clear that he is after, his word is for your joy. So disobeying his word will not lead to your joy, not lead to your flourishing. Satan tempts with doubt to believe in God's word. The Bible says that Satan tries to devour. He's like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. The Bible says that Satan is a master deceiver. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There are many Bible teachers and scholars that believe that a lot of these major religions that have these experiences of seeing an angel of light were seeing a direct manifestation of Satan himself. Referring specifically to Islam, referring to the Mormon faith, these were... Satan himself coming to deceive these people. It was kind of similar to Christianity, but so against it and forming cults. The devil is a liar. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar. When he speaks, he can do nothing but lie. That's his character. That's who he is. The Bible says that the devil blinds unbelievers from seeing God. He brings a deadness, a spiritual callousness. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what Satan is after. Deceiving, discouraging, dividing, doubt, devouring. And Paul's reminding the Ephesians in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle is hand-to-hand combat. That's not who your enemy is. Paul says, we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of this refer- is referring to demonic forces. The devil and his, those who are under him. His rulers, those who have authorities, the principalities, those who are over the present darkness. And Paul is contrasting here the, the natural versus the supernatural. I'm not really big into... Uh, superhero movies like some people are, um, even though there seems just like a ton of them that are coming out lately, and it's like, when are they going to stop, you know, all these remakes? But one thing that I love about watching the superhero movies, whether it's Avengers or a Marvel movie, is anytime you have a, a superhero going against a normal human being, the normal human being is always going to be toasted. They They... I mean, you're talking about natural versus supernatural. Like, go try to fight the Hulk. He's going to just kind of pick you up and throw you miles, right? Try to fight against uh, Captain America. You're not going to win. And this is what I think Paul is trying to get us to see, that you cannot, your battle is not against the natural forces, so you cannot use natural weapons to fight this battle. We are in a supernatural war. You need supernatural help. You need supernatural weapons. A scholar by the name of Douglas Moose says it like this, the Christian life is a spiritual battle which the ultimate opposition to the gospel stems from evil spiritual powers. These powers can operate through humans and institutions, but they cannot be reduced solely to these manifestations. 
These various terms show the diversity and comprehensiveness of the enemy's power, reminding us that the battle cannot be fought merely with human resources. That is why Paul says in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Notice the the emphasis, the repetition on standing, withstanding. So being strong in the Lord means putting on his armor, means depending upon his strength. Paul is confident and he says, stand, withstand, you will stand because he knows that God has given us everything that we need to do it. He hasn't left us empty-handed. He's, he's given us actually the full armor of God from head to toe. And we can withstand it against these schemes. Those in Christ have weapons and armor that is complete. But I think an important truth from this passage is that because those in Christ are at war, not with the flesh, but they're at war with supernatural demonic powers, they must rely upon the strength of the Lord. They, may must, they must be strong in the Lord, and I think simultaneously must be weak in themselves must be humble before God. That's our first principle from this morning. The strong in the Lord are people of humility. Paul doesn't say in the passage, be strong in your knowledge. Paul doesn't say, be strong in your abilities, your God-given gifts and talents. Paul says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. In other words, I think we need to humble ourselves, we need to admit that we don't have what it takes. In ourselves, we need outside help to fight. I was reminded of this so clearly the past couple weeks as my two-month-old daughter, Avery, has been in the hospital at Children's fighting a virus. And apart from a feeding tube and from medicine, I don't know if she would have, been, if she would have made it. She could very well be dead right now. Avery needed outside help. She didn't have what it take, took to fight the virus in herself. She needed outside help. And this is what's true of us in the gospel. We need outside help. This is a picture of the gospel. The gospel is not, I have what it takes in myself to fix myself. The gospel is not, I have the strength in myself that I can just muster up to fight against the, the devil, the schemes of the devil. The gospel is not, well, just work on yourself until you're good enough and then you'll be worthy to have God. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, yeah, I, I think I need a, to be in church. I need to gather with a church, uh, but I just, I need to work on myself first before I can come. And let me just say, like, if you, if you think I need to get clean enough before I can be in a church or be accepted by God, you're going to be cleaning for eternity. <laughs> Hang out with us for a little bit. You'll see we're not that clean either, right? <laughs> the gospel is not work on yourself until you're worthy enough. The gospel is God saying, I see your filth. I see your wickedness. I see everything that you have done wrong in your life. I see your pride. I see your arrogance. And I'm going to move towards you. I'm not going to kick you off to the side. I'm not going to condemn you, which is what you deserve, really, what we deserve. I'm not going to kick you to the curb. I'm not going to cast you aside. I'm going to move towards you. 
Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning while you were middle finger to God, living your own way, he came and said, I want you. I love you. I'm coming for you. Jesus loved you so much that he sent his son to secure your salvation. He sent his son to live a perfect life, to get a life that he didn't deserve. A life of suffering, a life of rejection, a life of death, a life of mockery, to give you a life that you didn't deserve. We are the ones who deserve to be cast off. We are the ones who deserve to be suffered. We are the ones who deserve to be condemned. And yet Christ suffered in our place. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. If you wonder, how could God love someone like me? Look at the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ was broken so that you could be healed. On the cross, Jesus Christ was rejected so that you could be approved. On the cross, Jesus Christ was shamed so that you could be honored. God said to you in the gospel, my son will take your sin upon himself on the cross. My son will take my wrath that you deserve upon himself. My son will give you his righteousness. The Bible says that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is given to us. So that when you stand now before Christ, God does not see the wicked, the filth, the sin. He sees Christ. He sees his righteousness. He says, you are justified before me because of Christ Jesus. That means you are made clean. He offers this to all who would repent and who would admit their weakness, who would admit their need, who would admit their sin, who would trust, who would turn from their self and turn to Christ, who would trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He offers this to all. The Christian life starts with humility and it continues in humility. Humility is required and humility will be instilled and grown in as you grow as a Christian. So number one, the strong in the Lord are people of humility. I think we can see from this passage too that trying to live the Christian life in your own strength is arrogance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he's describing a vision that he had from God. And when he said, he said, God's told to him, my grace is sufficient to you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. This is the mentality that we are to have. Be strong in the Lord. Those who are strong in the Lord are people of humility. Paul continues in verse 14. Therefore, stand, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. When Paul starts describing this image of, a, of armor of God, many of these Gentile uh, listeners, the audience would have thought about Roman soldiers, would have thought about what they wore. This, the belt of truth, this was the, a large leather belt that went around the waist that would kind of guard up their tunic and would hold the sword. He says, put on the belt of truth. He also says, put on Christ righteousness. Now we know from the beginning of Ephesians that Christ's righteousness has already been given to us. So I think what Paul is referring to when he says put on the righteousness of Christ is cling to it. Hold fast to it. 
when the enemy comes with these schemes, with deception, of feeding lies into your mind, such as you are not good enough, you are unworthy, you are a hypocrite, you're not good enough for God, you cling to the righteousness of Christ. You say back to him, yes, I am not good enough. I am not worthy. I am a hypocrite, but Jesus Christ has given me his righteousness. So I put on the righteousness of Christ, this breastplate of righteousness, so that these schemes, these lies of Satan just bounce right off because I am behind the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever had these thoughts or lies in your head? Will, just a couple weeks ago, shared this from the stage. This is not unique to, to him, I don't think. We all have these thoughts. These are lies. These are the schemes of the, the, the enemy, the devil. Nothing can stand against you when you are wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, Paul says, As shoes for your feet, feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's a readiness for battle, a readiness of the gospel of peace, the gospel of shalom. Peace with God and peace with others. That's what the gospel of peace is. Ready for, this is, readiness is a state of being prepared for action. This is urgency of the gospel. So in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The Roman shield was a large shield. It was a shield that could actually protect your whole body. And a lot of times it was a wooden shield, but they would wrap it in animal skin or in leather, and they would dip it in water so that when flaming darts would be shot at it, they would be extinguished. I think this is the, the, the illustration or the imagery that would appear, I think, in the original audience of the Ephesian church. And this is what Paul is saying, take up the shield of faith that can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. Those accusations, those demonic attacks, those temptations, those divisions, those discouragement, those doubts, those fits of anger, those false teachers, those attacks on you and the church, the shield of faith will protect you. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I think this is the first example of something that's, that is not only a self-defensive weapon, but is an offensive weapon. The sword. Not only use it to defend, but use it to attack. The Roman sword was a smaller, short sword. It was used for uh, close, hand-to-hand combat. Put on, take up the sword of the Spirit. It can attack. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you're familiar at all with the the gospel stories, the gospel accounts of Jesus, you know that both in Luke and in Matthew, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And Jesus defends the attacks of the, the enemy, the devil, with the word of God. So our second principle this morning is the strong in the Lord are people of the word. It's interesting as you look through uh, verses 14 through 17 and you see the pieces of armor that Paul describes, four out of the six are related to the word. 
So it's the belt of truth. This is an obvious illustration, a, a way of describing the word of God. What truth is there apart from God's word? The shield of faith. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Uh, number three, the gospel of peace. The gospel is the word about Jesus. Number four, the, maybe the most obvious one, it literally says, the word of the spirit, which is the word of God. You see, four out of these six are clear, I think, pointers to the word of God. How important the word of God is in fighting against the devil how important the word of God is in living the Christian faith. I think going to battle without the word is not only prideful and arrogant, but it's also foolish. Who wants to be sent out into battle without any armor? Right, imagine, if maybe you're, uh, they, you enlist into the army, they, they fly you over to the Middle East, they drop you off and they say, here you go, here's a water pistol. Have fun fighting the enemy. Right? It's like if you're in a boxing match and the, your, your opponent comes out and is leaning with the chin. What are you setting yourself up for? To be knocked out. You want to try to do the Christian faith without the word of God? Arrogant, foolish, prideful. leads us to ask the question this morning, how much time do we devote to the word in our daily life? I hope the statistics are not true about this church, about the reality of people who profess faith in Christianity, who are evangelical, and the amount of time they spend in their word. I hope that's not true of this church. I pray that we would be a church built on the word of God. Just going to be honest, friends, we're going to be taken out. And maybe the worst part of being taken out is we don't even know it. We're just kind of blind and calloused. We're just going along with the schemes of the devil and we don't even know it. That's the scary part about maybe if you're in this room this morning. You don't even know it, you're deceived. How important is it to have the church reminding you, pointing you out, calling you out of this? Amen? I think there's a problem in our life if we're more disciplined in keeping up with our television shows than we are in our scripture reading, our meditation, our memorization. There's a problem in our life if we're more disciplined in eating than we are in discipline in the word. If we're more disciplined brushing our teeth, Right? Might have clean teeth, but might have clean teeth that are rendered useless. <laughs> Number three, our third principle from, from this morning is the strong in the Lord are people of prayer. One scholar remarked that prayer is not only another piece of armor, but is the way believers appropriate God's armor and stand firm. And Paul instructs in verse 18, uh, go, going on, that when the Ephesians are supposed to pray and how they're supposed to pray and for who they're supposed to pray. It says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. 
Now, I think I could just have said that word to you this morning and be like, all right, let's try to do this. Go. How committed are we are to, to just hearing this? And sometimes I think we can hear something like this and it just goes in and out. Praying at all times in the spirit. What does that even mean? How do you pray at all times? You just stay in your room all day on your knees, your hands folded, just kind of starve to death? What does this mean, pray at all times? It means believers are to pr- are understand the, the practice of prayer. And we see this all times too, I think. When, in verse 18, Paul says, pray at all times with all prayer, all perseverance, all the saints. See the emphasis, the repetition of all. And armed with the word of God in prayer, believers stand firm. Another question, we have to examine our hearts in this. We have to have some good analysis of ourselves. How disciplined are you are in prayer? Are you in prayer? There is a huge lie that I think has spread throughout many churches in America that as long as you know good doctrine, you are a mature Christian. As long as you know about your Bible, as long as you know about God, you're mature. We've accomplished it. We'll do Bible studies that'll teach you about God, and then you're good. I think what this means is practically if someone who knows good doctrine, knows the right answer, but doesn't pray, is not on the word, is not only liable to attack and powerless, but is also really immature. If you want to know a professing Christian's seriousness about Jesus, a seriousness for purity, a seriousness for obedience, a seriousness for holiness, a seriousness for mission, a seriousness for service, do not look at how many Bible studies they're in. Do not look at how much knowledge about God they know. How much are they in the word and how much are they praying? You want to see what a person's really made of? Examine their prayer life. You want to know the litmus test of your spiritual health and maturity? Look at your prayer life. Government of Jeff Vanderstelt says ministry without prayer is arrogance. I don't mean to drop the hammer on you guys. I mean, it's feeling like, oh gosh, this is weighty. But I think we need to retrain. What, what do we want our kids to do? As we're discipling our kids, as we're growing up kids in this church, do we want them to just know the right things about God? They can give all the right answers? But their affections for God, they would, they would rather sin than honor God? Do we want that? I don't want that for myself. Prayer happens at all times, not only when we're praying on bend and knee, but as we're praying in the car driving. Prayer happens as we come to our home. God, I've had a hard day. Give me strength. I want to come home. I want my wife to serve me. I want to sit on the couch and enjoy a nice meal. God, give me strength to serve. Prayer should be happening as we listen and speak to others. Prayer should be happening as we discipline our kids. Prayer should be happening at all points throughout our day. God, give me a heart for you. Give me eyes to see you. I want to be led by you. I don't want to do things out of my own strength and will and power. Prayer should be happening as we take every thought captive. We take our thoughts to prayer. One of the best prayers can just be help. 
Bless you, Father. I need you, Father. Paul says, pray for all the saints. What does your prayer life consist of? I love what Megan Schlaub said uh, earlier this year. She said, if God answered all of your prayers, would anything outside of your life change? Do you pray for other people? Or are you just so self-centered on yourself? Do you pray for this church? Do you pray for your gospel community? Do you pray for your neighborhood? Do you pray for your city? I love verse 19. Paul says, pray also for me. I love that. Paul has this humility in himself. Leaders should not be afraid to ask for prayer. Pastors should not be afraid to ask for prayer. I was uh, listening to a podcast a while ago, and I remember a, a story of an older pastor who'd been a, a pastor for about four decades, and he was asked the question, how did you make it so long? When, as you've been serving and ministering and pastoring for four decades, those around you, many have burned out. Many have disqualified themselves with moral failures. Many have just quit and given up. What, what, what was the difference? And the, the pastor said, my people pray for me. So number one, the strong in the Lord are people of humility. The strong in the Lord are people of the word. The strong in the Lord are people of prayer. And lastly, the strong in the Lord are people of bold witness. For Christ, to Christ, with Christ. Paul says in verse 19, pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare it boldly, which is how I ought to speak. Would that be our prayer this morning? I don't have this timidness or, ooh, ugh, I don't know. Are people going to reject me? Declare it boldly. I think we see from the passage that in Christ, we are to be always ready to proclaim the gospel. We see that in verse 15. It says, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So all in Christ are to be ready to share the gospel. But we are also to proclaim it boldly. Why? Why do you think we can... Declare it boldly. Well, because we don't really know who's going to win, Christ or the devil. We don't really know who's victorious. We should not fear the rejection of man, but the rejection of God. We should not fear the rejection of man. We should fear the rejection of God. We should not fear the disapproval of man, but the disapproval of God. Believers can declare the gospel boldly because Jesus Christ is victorious. Read the end of the book. It's going to happen. There's no, ooh, I don't know who's going to win. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is ruling and reigning on his throne right now. Do we live with this kind of boldness? Why not? please, if you have an answer, I'd love to talk with you. Why don't we? Could it be that we're not people of the word and prayer? Could it be that we're not people of humility? We think we can just go through our life how we want. I'll pray at the beginning of my day and then I'll kind of forget about God. I'll go throughout my day, do my, my habits, my discipline, my routines. I'll come home. Maybe I'll open my Bible again. I'll do some family devotions. And then that's, what's, what's the TV show that's on? 
what do I want to do now? Remember that when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, he wrote it in prison. And I love the way Paul describes himself. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I hope and pray that we can adopt this language in how we describe ourselves. I am an ambassador in North Hill. I am an ambassador in Zenith. I'm an ambassador in Seattle, in my workplace, in Tacoma, in Kent, in Seattle, in Federal Way. Wherever I am, I am an ambassador. I came to this space this morning as an ambassador, and I'm going to leave this morning as an ambassador. So the question is, who are you showing by the way you live? The question is not, are you an ambassador, but who are you an ambassador to? A good moral life? self-dependence, a good person of habit and education. Someone who has it all together. Who and what are you pointing others to? A structured life, a life of comfort, a life of family and friends, or a life of bold witness to Christ? Would this be our prayer? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you are ruling and reigning from your rightful place on the throne right now. Your Father in heaven has given you all authority and power. You are exercising that right now as we speak. You are sovereignly ruling from your throne, and we praise you. We bless you, Father. Father, forgive us for living like we have been defeated or we have been conquered. We are, the Bible says we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Would the reality of who you are and where you sit tangibly play out in the way that we live? Father, would our confessions about you line up with our actions, our attitudes, our affections? Jesus Christ, you are never frustrated. You are never outdone. You are never confused. You are a king, you are a lord, you are a master, you are a ruler. Before the beginning, you were. All time is in your hand. You were present at the beginning of the world, foundation of the world. You are, will be present at the end. You will be gathering your people, your saints together, those who have, you have called by name, those who you have foreknown, those who you have predestined, those you have set your love upon, who you sent your son for, who you secured by dying on the cross for their sins, who you... Uh, sealed by giving them the promised Holy Spirit as an inheritance of what is to come. Father, we long for the time in which Satan will be wiped out completely. We long for the time in which our enemy will be rendered not only defeated, but harmless, cast into the pit forever. Father, would our prayer this morning be the song we are about to sing? We want to see Jesus lifted high. Father, would we be people of humility as we come under your word? Would you humble us so that we would come to your word? 
Father, would you bring suffering? If that happened, it has to happen. Would you bring things into our life to cause us to be humble so that we realize it isn't, we cannot do what it takes on our own. We need you, and that leads to prayer and the word. But Father, would you also make us those who are committed to daily uh, eating the bread of God? Those who are pouring out, who are praying at all times in the spirit. And Father, as we do this, would you make us a people of bold witness to Jesus Christ? Would we proclaim the gospel boldly as we ought to? For your glory and the joy of the city, the joy of, of our neighbors, the joy of our coworkers, that they might hear the gospel and find abundant life in you, would find joy, pleasures for evermore at your right hand. Father, you be lifted up now as we sing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.